Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Here we are then, the final episode of the fifth series of Bring Back V10s, but we're here to finish strong, answering another great selection of questions from our audience. Throughout the series, you've been sending in your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter and by email to BringBackV10s at the-race.com and we've received more than ever before, which we absolutely love. And joining me, Glenn Freeman, for this final rummage through your questions are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Mark, welcome back to another series finale. You've never missed one of these. You've seen the list of questions that we're tackling today. Is there one that stands out the most to you? Um, I like the one about the um, what what the Williams would have been like if it had a different driver lineup in um, eighty nine and ninety. But we'll I'll, I'll get into why when we, when we get there. But um, yeah, it's quite intriguing. Yeah, I look forward to that. That's one of the questions we've got near the end. And uh, Gary, as always, we've received a fair number of questions that were directly uh, for you from our audience. So which one are you most looking forward to? Well, I think the initial one actually about John Watson is interesting, but uh, like uh, Mark says, a different driver lineup. Sometimes uh, I wished we'd had a different driver lineup. So there's a few (laughs) of those in in the middle of there. Um, You know, it's always the same thing. You've got what you've got, so you've got to get on with it. Yeah, I think it's fair to say the the Bring Back V10s audience loves a, loves a what if when it comes to drivers. So we've got a fair few of those to get through today. As always, there was a third way people could submit questions to us, and that was by leaving a, a question attached to a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. So thank you to everyone who has been leaving us reviews and those of you getting in touch because you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, but you still want us to know your rating. So let's do the final set of review shout-outs for the series. Thank you so much to Nightsy90, Steve Shumi1, McDanger27, David Oldroyd, MattCam88, and Keith Hump. Um, we are, we're, we're so glad that you guys love listening to the show as much as we love making it. And that's why Bring Back V10s keeps returning for more series and will, of course, be back for a sixth series uh, later this year. But let's crack on uh, as we want to end the series by getting through as many of these questions as we can. And we're kicking off with that Jordan-related question that Gary hinted at. So, Gary, this is from Chris Parrott, who says, "Uh, I saw a clip of John Watson testing the Jordan 911 or 911 in 1990. Can Gary tell us more about how that test came about and if there was any ever any chance of Watson getting a drive for 1991? Well, I don't think there's any chance of him ever getting a drive, but it goes back a long way before that. Um, I actually worked with, with John... Um, way back in the very early seventies, when he first drove for uh, for for Brabham um, in a, an F two car, so I'd known him through that stage. And then the McLaren, uh, whenever he came there, I was at McLaren, so we had we'd known each other for a long, long time. And whenever we, you know, we'd always kept in touch, and we'd always seen each other around races and stuff. But whenever we uh, decided, or Eddie decided to build an F one car, um, 
John was fairly dismissive of it because he, he didn't see that we knew anything about Formula One. And uh, John being John, he, he says what he thinks. And I saw him at the British Grand Prix in 1990. And he sort of hinted that to me. He said, what, what do you guys know about a Formula One car? You know, blah, blah, blah. So I explained to him what I was, you know, my philosophy in the car. Um, basically, you know, I want to build a fairly efficient car. Um, we were probably going to have the best engine in the pit lane. Um, so we needed to make sure it was efficient. And uh, a car that was driver friendly was the plan. Uh, and, you know, that was it, dismissed and gone away. And then come time to, to uh, actually sort of run the car, uh, I said to Eddie, why didn't you get John to drive it? I mean, he's an Irishman, I'm an Irishman, you're an Irishman, so why not get John to have a bit of a pedal on it? He's, he's, you know, he's been driving up to that point in time to some sports cars and stuff, so he was, you know, he was uh, had the talent to do the job. And he was um, very um, keen to do it in the end. And to be honest, it was the best thing we ever done because from, I suppose, his first run as such, and we did like five laps, his first words whenever he came in was, he said, you know, the thing about this car is, he says, it's exactly what you told me back in July at the British Grand Prix. That's what it feels like. He said, it's so driver friendly. So on and so forth. So I think it was a good choice. Um, being Irish, it was a good choice. The experience he had, it was a good choice. But I didn't ever see it being... Um, that was going to sign him up for a deal because, you know, we needed money. We needed money badly. So the drivers had to come with a fairly thick wallet um, and, and that's what we ended up with. Mark, our next question is from Carwin who asks, how big an advantage did the Ferrari spec Bridgestones give Michael Schumacher in his title winning years in comparison to the more generic Michelins for the other leading teams? Do you think Michael still would have won all five titles if all the teams were on a control tyre? And if not then who would have won instead? Now, Mark, I guess we have to say the first of those titles in 2000 came on control Bridgestones. Is that any sort of indicator? Um, I mean, it, it, they, 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 they diverged, didn't they? And um, everybody was on Bridgestones and then Michelin came in and you know, the, the Bridgestones ended up being, I think um, they were on the Minardi's, they were on uh, Gary's, Jordan, and they were on the Ferrari. And of course, Ferrari was able to dictate what tyres they wanted. Um, but actually, very often they weren't as quick a tire as the Michelin. They had certain advantages over the Michelin in high-speed corners, in particular. Um, but uh, very often, the, the Michelin's ability to run cooler because it had the bendy sidewalls and meant the contact patch stayed more planted. It allowed them to get away with softer compounds. It was really Bridgeton essentially copied a Michelin construction in two thousand and six, and that. That was the first time Bridgestone really had a comparable tyre. But but the fact that Michael and Ferrari had their own custom-made tyres allowed them to develop their car in the way they chose rather than adapting to a customer tyre like everybody else had to do. And and Michael very much led that development. So it, it was almost like it's his own personal tyre company, really. Um, and that, you know, the, the, the tremendous advantages from that. But... I think if Ferrari on Michelin, if, if everybody had been on Michelin, if Michelin, if those particular Michelins had been the control tyre, I, I think um, he would have dominated regardless. You've got Michael Schumacher, uh, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, Jean Tott, a limitless amount of money. I think they would have dominated regardless. Um, maybe even by more than they did. Who knows? They they were just the best combination of talent and organisation and budget on the grid. And um, I think on balance, they... Um, they they would have won 
they, they may have even won sometimes with a tire disadvantage um, when they're on the Bridgestones, but I, I certainly think they would have still won had everybody been on the same tire. Just if I can, if I can put a little bit in there, um, I mean, we were using at Jordan, we were using uh, the Bridgestones in 2002, 2003, and we did some testing or quite a lot of testing for Bridgestone, to be honest. And on some occasions, we actually tested some of the Ferrari tires as such, um, because they're all the same size as everything like that. But we tested some of the Ferrari tires for Bridgestone, and the difference, you know, in the in the tires that we got and the tires that they got was was significant, and the fact that they had very different materials in the sidewall, as you're saying there, Mark, about getting the compliance in the sidewall. So even back then, they had a, a much more expensive tire for Ferrari, which had more exotic materials in the sidewall. You know, the, the back-to-back switch was, for us, was a good half a second, even more. Um, and I think we, you know, we we sort of contributed towards the, the development of that tire because we needed to to make it better for us. So we 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 contributed towards the cheaper version of it, I think, and that some of the times we had to compare it to the the more expensive version because, um, you know, they, they didn't want all the teams to be struggling. So we had to still develop the tire and, and the direction that the big boys were pushing was the right direction, but it just the tire would be too expensive for mass production. So, yeah, I mean, the tires make a big difference, but I don't think the, the package of the Michael and the Ferrari, I don't think it would really have mattered. Um, I think it's still a done it. Now, Gary, our next question is about a topic that we talked about in an earlier episode that you weren't on but it's about another great great driver and that's Ayrton Senna. F1 Fiend wants to know if you were aware of Eddie Jordan's offer to sell half of the team to Senna and what do you think the outcome would have been if it had gone through. So this we just we discussed this uh, on our Spa 92 episode when Senna was considering walking away from F1 after he missed out on a drive with Williams for 1993. So if people want to go back and hear more about it then they can. But Gary, did you know about it at the time? And even if you didn't, how do you think that might have played out if it had come off? Well, I didn't really know about it in detail, and but I do know that Eddie would have sold half of the team to anybody if he could have got enough money for it. And there <laughs> obviously comes comes with uh, the credentials of being able to would have been come with the credentials of being able to pay for it and to have joined the team obviously as a driver, which was a whole different deal. Um would it have worked out? No, because, you know, Jordan Grand Prix at that point in time were not ready for an Ayrton Senna. I mean, that's the biggest drain you could ever do in your resource, trying to satisfy uh, somebody of that level at that point in time. And, and it's sort of why we didn't really get Michael Schumacher as well after the test of 1991. You know, it's just we weren't ready for that. He knew that. He could see that. You know, once he had a trip around Benetton, he knew that we were a completely different um a completely different Formula One team to what Benetton could offer him. And it wasn't just money, it was just the whole thing. So anybody trying to do that and, and bring in a top-line driver at that point in time, I think was pretty naive to what a Formula One the team needed to be to be able to support a top-line driver. Uh, to be honest, that was that was one of the biggest problems, but I don't think it would ever have happened. I think it was all uh, probably, you know, talk and a bit of hot air here and there, because it would be a good idea sitting down one night at the pub chatting about it. But whenever it comes to reality, I think it would have been a terrible idea. I think it's interesting what you said there about the team not being ready. Firstly, I think Jordan's form in the first half of the 90s backs that up. But we've talked in the past about how Senna inquired with John Barnard about if he should go to Benetton, I think in 1990. And Barnard told him then that Benetton wasn't ready for Senna. So Jordan, 
by 92, which was a difficult second season, certainly wasn't. Let's move on, Mark, to a question from Alex Holland-Martin, who asks, do you think Jensen Button could have won the 2005 World Championship with Renault if they had kept him on? Um, sure, he could have, but it depends on the, the, the circumstances. Is he there alongside Alonso? And you have to look at why Renault let Jensen go. He and Briatore never hit it off. And Alonso was much more on Briatore's wavelength and Flavio indeed managed them. So could Jensen have gone up against that combination, come out on top? No, I, I don't think so. I think the odds would have been stacked against him. And he would have felt he wouldn't have felt he was on the inside. Psychologically, that wouldn't really be sustainable. He was a as a character that was his best when wasn't at his best when fighting against a foe like, say, Mark Webber. You know, when he had a point to prove, that was when he did his best stuff. Jensen wasn't like that. Jensen, he, had, he was a driver that had fantastic ability, but there were certain specific limitations, and he, he was at his best with a supportive team around him. Um, so had it been different circumstances and he'd gone there as the number one driver and he was supported, yeah, he was fully capable of winning that title in that car at that time, but the the, the circumstances weren't like that, so... Um, no, I think um, alongside Alonso, he would have um, he, he wouldn't have been able to do it like that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Gary, uh, Rory G has a question about Colin McRae's seat swap with Martin Brundle in 1996, where McRae got to drive a 1995 Jordan and Brundle drove McRae's uh, Subaru Impreza. Rory asks, what were the circumstances that led to this event and what sort of impression did McRae make in the F1 car? He also asks if there were any concerns beforehand given Colin's reputation behind the wheel. Well, starting with the last point first, uh, I think if anybody's stepping into a Formula 1 car for the first first time, there's always a bit of concern about it. Um, but it was all done really through through Gallagher's Benson and Hedges and all that stuff, trying to... Um, you know, get a bit of a bit of a few column inches, I suppose you might call it, and why not? Um, the Subaru was sponsored by um, Five Five Five, wasn't it? And, and uh, he was he was rallying, so that was all the same concern, or uh, they were associated with each other in one way or another. So it was, you know, it was all all for column inches, and I think I didn't, I wasn't at that test, but I got told about it because I think the first time he left the garage, I think he impressed everybody. Um, it was one of those situations where he had his uh, rally car slide on straight out of the garage and <laughs> up the pit lane. So, um, yeah, everybody's a little bit worried. But when he did that and he came around lap one and they had it, you know, sort of nailed basically on lap one through, along the pit straight, everybody thought, hmm, well, he's either going to have a massive shunt or he's going to bring it back. One of the two, but he definitely believes in himself. And, you know, to be a rally driver, that's one thing you have to do. You have to believe in yourself because, you know, every corner is a new experience in rallying. And he treated the F1 car like that. You know, every corner was a new experience for him around Silverstone. So he had a lot of natural talent and he could apply that to most things he drove. Um, you know, he wasn't right on the pace or anything like that, but he was still going pretty damn quick. So um, 
it was very impressive, I think. And I say everybody that was at that test came back was uh, very positive comments about him. I was actually at that test. Um, did, did a feature for Motoring News about it. And so I, I interviewed them both, like before and after. And uh, I was asking Colin, you know, how you how you approach, how are you going to approach it? And he said, I'll just drive up to where I'm comfortable and where it starts feeling uncomfortable. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And so Martin went out and he did his, um, you know, he did he just sort of not a target time, but just a representative time. It was on the short circuit, Silverstone. And, um, you know, first time he comes past the pits, you know, on full power out of uh, out of the, the the previous corner. And Colin's standing on the, the pit wall and he, he, he suddenly got the, a sense of just what a, you know, the, the, the performance that was there. And I think he hadn't quite clocked it up until that moment. He said, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, I think I might go home actually. <laughs> and he was, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't all that. I mean, he, might, he was making a bit of a joke of it, but he, 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 it, I think it did make an impact on him when he's, because when you see the, the, the violence of a Formula One car close up from the outside, so I guess it's very doesn't feel like that from the inside, I guess, but it, it it did definitely make an impact on Colin. But like you say, he was uh, very very confident, and he, he was using his car control. Um, and I think from memory, he was one point nine seconds off after about ten laps, and then he was getting a bit leery. He was getting more and more sideways out of the previous corner, and somebody said, "Bring the." Bring him in, <laughs> bring him in quick, because I think he was getting a bit too confident, and they could see that what the next stage was going to be, um, and 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 then yeah, then we switched over to the uh, the rally stages um, at Silverstone, and um, Martin sat in with Colin. I think that gave him a, a bit of a a bit of a fright, and then he had to go himself with Colin sitting alongside, and he did with quite respectable times. I think. Um, I talked to Dave Lapworth afterwards, the pro drive engineer, and he said, "No, that that pace that Martin was doing, that would be a good, that'd be competitive in Clubman's Rally and at national levels. So not not bad effort for straightaway. So I think, yeah, they, they both performed very well, as you'd expect, you know. But it was it was an interesting exercise. It's great fun. Yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant, memorable, memorable story. And I'm glad we've. I don't think we've ever discussed that before. So I'm glad we finally got to it. Thank you, Rory, for the question. Uh, Mark, our next question is from uh, Ferenc Palais, who says, why don't we talk more about the 2005 Belgian GP as Toyota's biggest chance for a win? And uh, it's because Ralph was fastest in the early part of the race, and if they didn't switch to slicks too early, they should have won. Uh, Mark, let's put that theory to the test. You were there, of course. Do you do you agree with that summary? Uh, not quite, but I can see the logic. Um this was the race at which the track never dried, and it was all it was seemed to be on the cusp of being dry enough for dry throughout, and it never did. It was just it was Inter's weather all the way through, and it just rained just enough not to 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 make it dry. And so many people tried and failed and had to come straight back in and change again, and that that put them out of contention. And Ralph was one of those. So he'd um he'd made good progress early on because of the timing of his, of his first stop, and that that leapfrogged him ahead of Kimi, but he was still behind Montoya. And that's where the theory becomes unstuck, I would say. Um, if he'd, if if Ralph had stayed out and not attempted to go on the drys, he'd still have had to beat Montoya's McLaren, which was running comfortably ahead of him. Um, Ralph, had, as I say, Ralph had jumped Raikkonen, 
who eventually won the race, so I can see the logic. But Raikkonen won the race only with the help of Montoya, who did very deliberately, very slow in and out laps at the second stops so that they could swap the drivers around because Kimi was in contention for the championship and Montoya wasn't because he'd missed part of the, the early season anyway. So, But Montoya was only able to give Raikkonen that help because Ralph wasn't there in between them anymore because he could the, the, the second stop. So if, if Ralph had stayed out and pitted about the same time as Montoya, he would have had to have passed him on the track. Um, Ralph versus Juan Pablo wheel to wheel with a win at stake. My money wouldn't be on Ralph in that situation. No, I think that's fair. And uh, yeah, really interesting theory. But that, that race has never crossed my mind before as as one that Toyota could have won. But yeah, I mean, Ralph certainly had the potential to split the McLarens, which would have been interesting. Gary, uh, let's go back in time a bit further from from that race. Paul Lucas has a question about the 1994 Brazilian Grand Prix. And Paul says, when Eddie Irvine was banned for three races after the crash at Interlagos, did the punishment fit the crime? And I'll I'll provide a little bit of background here because this was initially a one-race ban for the massive accident involving Martin Brundle, Jos Verstappen and Eric Bernard but it was extended to three races by the FIA as punishment for what was deemed a frivolous appeal by Jordan. So I guess there's two stages, Gary. Was any sort of ban fair in the first place? And of course, what did you make of of, of the, the ban being extended? Because I'd imagine you didn't feel the appeal was frivolous in the first place. Um, well, it's a difficult thing, actually, because I think even the, the one-race ban was, was not quite correct. I mean, there was a set of circumstances that happened there with Martin Brundle his engine blew up, um, and there's three guys all running at the, you know, behind him, all keen for a result. And suddenly, there's a bit of a, a bit of a kerfuffle going on, I suppose you might call it. And you know, it, it to my extent, it was a bit of a racing incident. Um, yes, it might have been one driver being a bit more brave than he should have done, or whatever. But it was a bit of a racing incident. So I think the one race ban was a bit heavy going. I actually didn't want them to appeal it for the to uh, to appeal it because sometimes things I've learned through time is that if um, you've got to be really sure of your your reasons for it, or else you know you're not going to win with the FIA. It's sometimes better to to bite the bullet and get on with it and, and let it happen. So I wasn't a big a big uh, fan of uh, appealing it, um, but we had a, a solicitor at that time who was who was. Um, renowned as being pretty good at that sort of thing and it obviously didn't work out that way um, so the three race ban I thought was well over the top but uh, you know you can't get out of it once you start the ball rolling and trying to sort of sort something out like that you can't get out of it but as I say I even thought the one race ban was not correct I mean Mark you'll probably have a better opinion you were on the outside of it all I might be biased a little bit because I was obviously with Jordan at the time but you, you maybe saw it slightly differently no not really. It was it was a very intense scrap, and then all of a sudden you've got a blown engine in the middle of it, and yeah, I mean, somebody went one way, somebody went the other, and it it, it didn't um it didn't coincide. It, for me, it was pure racing incident. Uh, yeah, I agree, hundred percent with that. Because as I say, you know, these things happen, and they're they're you know the racing drivers out there to try and get the best result. This was Eddie's Eddie's first year in Formula One, you know, so it was a, an important year. He'd, he'd done a couple of races in '93. But this was his first big year. The car was a pretty decent car. And, you know, so he was out there after a result. So I don't think you can blame them at that point in time. And that's where the circumstances. I mean, if you look back even to then and, and to now, we've still got the same sort of 
um, lack of understanding as to what is draconian and what is accidental. You know, we, we don't, we haven't really improved on that front at all. There's no, there's no way to sort of justify or, or judge a, a racing incident to see whether who was at blame. It's impossible. Racing happens. Racing is about racing. Racing is about getting the best result possible, and that's that's all Eddie was trying to do at that point in time. I suppose Eddie maybe had the cloud of his debut and upsetting Senna hanging over him, so maybe he came into the season with a reputation. But I think I agree with what you both said. Given the moving parts involved and the fact that the, the, the reason there is this concertina of all the cars is because the Peugeot engine in the McLaren has blown up. Cars are going to have to try and duck and dive to move around that. Maybe may, maybe F1 officials just have a blind spot with that corner because that was the same corner we had the Verstappen-Hamilton nonsense at in, in 2021. But what I also found interesting was Throughout 94, when I've researched other things for 94 for this show, that ban at the start of the year had the effect the FAA wanted because whenever other people were getting in trouble, it was cited that nobody wanted to appeal stuff because they were afraid of having what what Jordan had, had gone through. So do you think, Gary, that you were maybe scapegoated and almost unlucky to be the first team that had to put this theory to the test? Yeah, I think... I think we probably were a bit unlucky, and I think you're right in the fact that, um, you know, the, the I suppose, arrogance, you might call it, from uh, 93 with Senna and Eddie, the little debate they had at the Suzuka, probably needed um, t- trimming uh, fairly early, and I think that's probably what the FIA saw, was that, that sort of situation, really. It was time to sort of, you know, put your foot down and sort of say, right, enough's enough, boys. And that, that gave it a reason, but I never felt that through the through the time I was involved closely with F one that um, that the the you, you couldn't come against the FIA and actually come out on top. You'd always you would always you know ninety nine point nine percent of the time you would lose out, and this was a typical example of that. Uh, we had a few occasions, not just protests, but uh, or not uh, appeals, but you know protesting some stuff or. Uh, requesting clarification on some stuff and we we always come out of it feeling like the underdog um whoever the you know if it was a bigger team you were doing something against or questioning you would never ever come out of it on top so i don't know it's it's always been the same it always will be the same i suppose but it's a it's a difficult set of circumstances for a small team to carry any weight to get any changes done yeah certainly and uh, if anyone hasn't listened to our um hockenheim 94 episode yet we had tony dodgins on for that one and uh, he talked about uh being on the same flight home as eddie irvine and and he said that uh eddie was more interested in talking about his suspicions that he had about michael schumacher's benetton than he was in talking about uh his crash and the band that uh, he was picking up for it so uh, i don't think eddie dwelled on it on it too much we've got a couple of um hypotheticals now relating to flavio briatore and driver's that he may be cast aside. So we'll throw these to you, Mark. The first one is from Ethan Henson, who says, if Jano Trulli hadn't fallen out with Flavio after that victory in Monte Carlo in 2004 and therefore stayed for 2005 and six, would he have taken more than the two wins Fissy Keller did in those seasons? Uh, quite possibly, yes. He, I think he was ultimately a, a quicker driver than Fissy, um, although Fissy had his moments too. Um, he's probably more ambitious at that stage of his career. I don't think he'd have threatened Alonso's leadership of the team because he wasn't a, a dominant sort of personality and he wasn't as adaptable a driver or as good wheel to wheel. But the, there have been days when he was quicker. 
And and that might have been a problem with Fernando chasing a title in both of those years. So um, I think Fissy was actually a better fit for the team in those circumstances. He was he was there to win, you know, when when Fernando did when it hadn't come together for Fernando or whatever, and and, and he did a good support role and it was a very harmonious team uh, with that pairing. And the uh, to go back a decade and uh, maybe a, a similar question, uh, Pasha Shahini asks, how would Martin Brundle's career? have panned out if he had stayed at Benetton for 1993. And Pasha, of course, references Flavio's admission that it was a mistake to get rid of Brundle because he hadn't realised during 1992 quite how good Michael Schumacher was. So an alternative reality here, Mark, what do you think would have happened to the following years of Brundle's career if he'd been in some of those uh, quick Benettons that we saw in the mid-90s? I don't know how you could be... Um, the team boss at Benetton in 92 and not realise that Michael Schumacher is quite good. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think Martin have had a pretty good 93, just like he'd had a good 92. Um, he'd, actually, he'd also been promised the Williams drive for 93, uh, the one that eventually went to Damon Hill. And he'd certainly won races in that. So, uh, yeah, 93, Patrese wasn't as strong as Brundle had been in that seat the previous year. Uh, I think qualifying the deficit was about the same. The deficit to Michael was about the same. But in the races, Martin was much stronger than Patrese turned out to be in in that year. And Gary, actually, I'll I'll quickly throw uh, this to you. Obviously, you had Martin at Jordan at the end of his F1 career. Did you feel when he joined the team that there was a guy who, if he'd been in race-winning cars in the years prior to joining Jordan, he would have been getting the job done? Um, you know, there's there's lots of drivers out there that put them in a race winning car and they can win races, or they could win races, should win races. Um, my Martin, I've no nothing against him. The one thing that I did feel that was, again, we weren't the biggest and strongest team at that point in time. Ninety six wasn't the best car we've ever built either. Um, I didn't, I don't think Martin actually joined our club. You know, I think he was driving for us because he wanted to have a drive and he didn't get it anywhere else. So he didn't join our club of, of not being in a good enough position to, to to do well, I suppose you might call it. Yeah, you could do well, but it would be a lucky day that you would pull the, pull the results out of it somewhere. And Rubens had been with us and he was, you know, he was he come up through our Jordan School of Motoring as such in F1, um, Rubens Barrichello. So, you know, it was one of those sort of situations we we had known Rivens well enough to sort of put have confidence in him that he would he would do the job he would he he was in our club um so i think that, that's always a difficult thing whenever a, t- a driver comes in from a potentially potentially that's a better driver that can win races comes into a team that's not really capable of winning races and and doesn't really you know buy into that the same same thing in a way whenever damon hill came to me um it was just like you know everything was related to other teams they'd driven to how they did this or how they went about this and we weren't that other team we were us we needed them to come in and join our club and then work together to get out of these problems and i didn't feel i didn't feel that martin actually joined that band but as a driver you know yeah he was consistent he was quick um the one thing that used to annoy me a little bit it would come in into the pits and you know everything was in, in his mind. I'm sure it was there, but it was like, you know, the water temperature in the middle of turn four was going up by two degrees and the oil pressure was this and, you know, all that stuff. All that stuff that you don't really need to know, to be honest. But he had this he had this way of t- 
taking everything in and then downloading it when it came into the pits. And all we wanted to do was know about the car and what we could do to make it go faster. It didn't really matter about the water temperature going up two degrees. It wasn't really something that was critical for us. But yeah, sometimes they're annoying. I, I still, to this day, like the young driver, the fizzies, the Barrichellas, Irvine, those type of guys, whenever you throw them in the car, they just wring its neck and, and uh, the stopwatch tells all. You mentioned Damon Hill there. And our next question is about Damon. And it's um, it's a long one from Jack Jeffries. We're going to answer this question in two parts. But fundamentally, Jack's question is, is Damon Hill the greatest test and development driver of all time? Now, Jack explains his logic. So he says, Damon helped develop the Williams FW14B in 1992, then worked on the incredible successor to that, the FW15C for 93. He says Damon helped turn the 94 FW16 from a very hard-to-drive car into a title contender in B-spec form, points out that the 95 and 96 Williams cars were both incredibly fast. He then points out how the 97 car slipped back over the course of the season once Hill had left after being a class and field at the start of the year, and points to how Arrows' fortunes changed over the course of that season after Hill had struggled to qualify in Australia. And finally, he says Arrows regressed after Hill left, while Damon helped Jordan turn around its fortunes in mid-1998 to win its first race. The team then had a title contender in 99, which Damon, of course, didn't make great use of. And then after Damon left, Jordan's decline began at the start of the 2000s. It is a compelling case. And Gary, I'm going to come to you for the Jordan-specific element before we get Mark's take on, on the question as a whole. You were there working on that Jordan. That 198 was your car. How significant was Damon's contribution to the mid-season turnaround? Um, <clears throat> right. Difficult to really to really answer, I think, is the best way of putting it. Um, we had Ralph Schumacher, and Ralph was... Um, Young, hungry, and brave, I suppose you might call it. We'd come from a 97 season, which was was pretty pretty good. He had done his, his year of learning as such, Ralph, Ralph was concerned. So he was trying to go into 98 to move forward. Um, and he, in, his, in his mind, this was his career. So he, he had to make 98 work for him. And obviously when we started testing the car, the car wasn't doing what it should have done. Now, lots of reasons. We had changed from the Peugeot engine to the Honda engine and so on and so forth. And the Paris figures had gone down dramatically. The regulations had changed quite a lot. And we had lost our way a little bit. Uh, the engine was, wasn't was as performant. Um, and we didn't get started testing very early because of a situation with Honda and their electronics supplier. that The system they were going to use was to control the whole car and it just didn't work. So we were very late getting testing. Uh, it was very late before we realised we had we had some problems. Um, now you know, I, I, as far as Ralph was concerned, he would pull a lap time out of anything. It didn't really matter about how you drove it. You know, he was he was courageous, brave, and you know he used used both feet and both hands and just got on with it. Damon wanted a car a car that was much more comfortable to drive. And one of the things that you know popped up, and it was it took us to Monaco before we realised. What was or for? Yeah, we realised what was sort of going on, and um, because obviously Monaco a lot slower, very slow speed track, blah blah blah, and we were in, in pretty bad shape there. So I started to try and work out in my head what was going on because you know all the stuff you do, you only research a certain amount, and you you try and improve that every year, more downforce, stiffer, lighter, all that sort of stuff, all the normal contributing factors to a car going quickly. Um, 
And it was one of those sort of situations where we sort of looked at what, what could cause us grief at, um, at Monaco more than anywhere else. And we did a sort of an XY plot of driver's concerns at certain corners because every every end of every session, the driver would fill in a sort of a corner report. And uh, obviously the low-speed corners, the car had lots of understeer in it. So we decided to research the, the steering characteristics of the car. And we had we found some faults in it. Basically, the center of pressure was moving rearwards, the more steering lock you put on the car. So if you had a bit of understeer, put a bit more lock on it, the car understeered more. And that, the driver couldn't get his head around that. Ralph, as I say, he, he would drive most things. So he just drove past it. He just you know found a solution to getting around it, whereas Damon didn't want to do that. He wanted to be sitting in the car and steering it and all that sort of stuff. And I remember even asking Damon at one point in time, how do you know the car is understeering? And he said, well, whenever you put more steering lock on it, if your shoulder doesn't load up, then you know that the car is understeering. It's not making you, you know, not turning the corner, not turning the car, so it doesn't load your shoulder up. So um, through this point in time anyway, we, we sort of, I think, have recognized the problem and we had instigated some changes to, to, to rectify it. Um, but during the period when the car wasn't good, you know, I remember, I think it was Brazil, Damon getting out of the car and kicking the rear tires and saying, I don't understand what's wrong. Because it was just one of those situations where there was something fundamentally wrong, and uh, he he couldn't get on top of it. So, I I don't think Damon helped us to get the car better at that point in time. We had done lots of stuff like, um, you know, the, the big thing then was was uh, the wheelbase. We lengthened the wheelbase because it was <clears throat> it was quite a short car. Williams were doing the same sort of thing. You know, some people were moving the rear wheels backwards. Some people are moving the front wheels forward. Some people are moving the front wheels backwards and the rear wheels backwards and, you know, moving the weight distribution around. We we went for a, a longer front wheel, a longer wheelbase, um, moving the front wheels forward, which I think we went to Emelo with it and, and Damon loved it. Oh, it was, it was great. So much better to drive. Um, Ralph hated it because the car wasn't responsive enough. So he, the problem was that we didn't see an improvement really in, in Damon's performance with it. He liked it. It was better to drive, but it didn't it didn't make it go quicker. And we were looking for something to make the car go faster. So our research and that <clears throat> and all that stuff pointed to where we needed to go. And that's that's the direction it went mid season. And that, you know, they made the car better for the second half of the season. I wasn't there then because during that period in time, um I you know, I I had major discussions with some of the management at Jordan at that point in time. Not Eddie. Eddie was okay. But it was uh, it was other people that uh, you could feel the undercurrent because Damon came there as the big white hope um, to bring great results to us, and he didn't. And you know, I was deemed as the bad boy because I didn't give him the tools to do it. But uh, it was a set of circumstances, and, and you know, it unfolded in a certain way. Um, do I think just to answer the first part of the question a little bit? Do I think Damon was the, a very good test driver? He was obviously very capable within a set of circumstances that that um, allowed him to recognize the problems. But in our set of circumstances, our set of circumstances, I don't think he was a, a major contributor to our to being able to get out of the clag. So, Mark, let's look in a bit more detail at those Williams years. Does Damon deserve massive credit for the quality of some of those Williams cars in the 90s? Or was he just the guy driving cars created and developed by Adrian Newey? Both. He was in the best cars, but he prevailed over both Coulthard and Villeneuve, both pretty strong teammates. 
Um, you could say that they were they were both early in their careers, but so was Damon. You know, Damon's um, first full career was in in a race winning car, and he won race. He won races. Um, he, he he had the mental capacity, and he had the strength of character to use that opportunity. I think is the best way of putting it. There, there were other several ostensibly more flamboyant talents, should we say? That were rated maybe higher than Damon at the time, but I'd say wrongly so. They they wouldn't have been as successful as Damon was had they been given that chance because they didn't have the same intensity or intelligence. Um, I don't I don't think it's um, down to him being a great test driver or anything like that. I think he was just a good racing driver. He was quick, and he was more importantly, he was very focused and highly intelligent. And I think that drive and that um, whatever urges were were pushing him on to achieve were very strong in him and he absolutely pounced on the opportunity um, when it had looked like his not very long before that it had looked like his his career was going nowhere and um, you know that I think he'd, he'd been staring into oblivion and then all of a sudden it, this possibility this this opportunity presented itself and he wasn't going to let it go um whatever and i think that's really the um the the, the core strength of damon and it, 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 he absolutely maximized that chance gary andy from slovenia wants to know a bit more about jordan's side pod designs in the mid 90s Andy says jordan had conventional side pods in 1994 then narrow crescent shaped inlets in 95 then thin intakes for 96, and then back to conventional for 1997. So talk us through, what was the thinking during those years? Um, really, it started, I suppose, in 93 as well. Um, that was the sort of era where the barge boards started to become very powerful. Um, so you've got, this, um, you've got this mechanism for turning the airflow out from underneath the chassis um, that is pulls more airflow out from underneath the chassis to the leading edge of the underfloor. And the thinking behind it was the fact that you've got this radiator duct, which uh, you get spillage coming out of because um, the radiator can't flow all the air through it at high speed. So you need to have a compromise of cooling. Um, so, you know, you, you, you weigh up the radiator blockage, the radiator inlet and the radiator exit hole to allow um, the cooling levels you need for each circuit. But as I say, let's say, just for out, of, out of top of my head, 200 kilometers an hour, the radiator can't flow flow that amount of volume through it. So the, that airflow spills out of the radiator duct and goes somewhere, or some of that airflow spills out of the radiator duct and goes somewhere because it can't all go through the radiator. And because you've got low pressure underneath the flow of the car, that, that is tended to pull that flow out of there and go underneath the car. Nowadays, it's, it's more of the... Uh, the undercut side pod that's still doing exactly the same thing, but it spills down into the undercut side pod, so that doesn't affect the underfloor of the car. But in those days, as I said, the barge boards were becoming very important. So my philosophy there was to try to get a limpet-style uh, minimum uh, uh, radiator opening and then control the, the, the flow to the leading edge of the underfloor with the barge boards and then the underfloor would be more consistent. It wouldn't get, it wouldn't change because of the spillage out of the radiator duct. And, you know, we got results out of it. Um, and sort of for those two years, I suppose the, the 95 car was the best solution to it. The 96 car got swayed a bit by Peugeot. 
um, and to what we did because of the the cooling. Um, you know, they they started to affect us a little bit on on some of our decisions, um, and so that that headed as that direction um, with the twin inlets could separate the water cooling and the oil cooling. Um, and it never really sort of come up with the results that it should have done. So for '97, we resorted back to um, more more fundamental or more basic radiator inlet. But again, with, we've got the barge boards working well with it, and more powerful, more power from the barge boards. So the downforce levels on the '97 car were much much better than the downforce levels on the '96 car. Um, so it was one of those sort of areas where we tried to do something didn't quite get the best out of it and end up uh, going backwards or going back to where we were before we started doing it. But I think the 95 car looked quite good. It was, you know, it was one of the, I like the idea of the, I, I like the ideas behind it, but it didn't really, it didn't really jump forward with performance um, as we thought we could get out of it. But when you start these things, you believe in it. So you can't just change direction every day of the week. You have to follow your path and, and, and sort of hope a little bit that, a little bit more time in the wind tunnel will bring results. Um, and basically, it, it didn't quite bring results. It did, but not as big a results as we thought we'd get from it. I'd agree that the 95 car looked good. Um, really nice, really nice shape, nice flowing lines to that. Now, Mark, uh, Moaning Moaning Mansell asks, if Williams had Prost or Senna in 89 or 90, would they have been capable of challenging for the title? Did Williams have a good car in those years, but just lack a star driver to get the best out of the car or push the development. And I will just add, there's of course the famous story of Nigel Mansell getting in the, the 1990 car at the end of that year in testing and going much faster than Thierry Bootsen and Ricardo Patrese ever did. So is there some mileage to this theory or, or was it still too early for Williams technically in 89 and 90? There's a little bit of truth in it, I guess. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. Mansell got in that car and he went about a second and a half faster once he'd softened the suspension up and made it a more difficult but drive, but more compliant drive, and it, it, it completely transformed the car. Um, and that wouldn't have quite put it on McLaren-Honda territory, but I think had you had a superstar driver in either of those cars, there would have been occasions when they would, they would have been able to take it to McLaren-Honda. Um, but I don't, I don't think you would just... Um, Prost or, or Senna in, in, in that category. I, I, know, I noticed the, the morning, morning Mansell name, but I would absolutely put Mansell in that category as well. I mean, that, that he proved as much um, by that, you know, how he, he stepped up the performance of that car instantly. Um, so, yeah, if you put a Senna or a Prost in that, I'm sure they, they would have done much the same. But um, Mansell doesn't get due credit really by a lot of people about the calibre of driver he was. He rarely gets mentioned in the same breath as those two but that that is now Senna so um you know no nor was it how Adrian knew he saw it Adrian's pretty adamant that in an active car Mansell would have demolished Prost had Mansell stayed there in 93 rather than walk out because of Prost recruitment and then when Mansell went to Indy cars he talked to Emerson Fittipaldi about it and he says that Senna told him watch out for this guy he's incredible and Emerson said he was blown away by just how right Senna was once he saw him using his car control around the ovals at 200 miles an hour. And it was still there in Grand Prix Masters in 2005. So, yeah, I, I think any of those uh, top three drivers would have given Williams much stronger 89 and, and 90 and probably would have won them a few races. Um, but it, no, the, the, the car wasn't by that stage yet on 
McLaren Honda's level, it, it, it came in 91 with Adrian's first design, Adrian Newey's first design for the team. Yeah, I think if you, if you go back to that and you take your, your Prost and uh, Senna and Mansell sort of comparison, I think the one thing that Mansell would do would just be to drive the wheels off it, a bit like my comparison to Ralph Schumacher a little while ago there, between Ralph and Michael. Michael sort of knew what he was doing with the car. Ralph thought he knew what he was doing with the car, but he was actually brave enough to do it. And Mansell, I think, is a bit like that. You know, put him in, as you say, in an active car and tell him this is what it will do, and he would just drive it, whereas Prost and Senna would still try to use their talent to to make the car go faster as opposed to relying on it. I remember going back to the Jordan days with Fisichella and, and Sato and traction control. You know, Sato would just look at the ex- exit at the corner and nail the throttle. That was it. You know, peg it immediately and let the traction control look after it. Fizzy would confuse the living daylights out of it by trying to still drive the, drive the car. And he would actually be slightly ahead of the traction control, but he didn't have the confidence just to nail the throttle because that's not what he did all his life. So uh, there's always that thing, you know, the professor of being Alan Prost, the super quick all-round driver like Aaron Senna and the brave driver like Nigel Manson. Great to compare those those three in the same sort of era because uh, they were three extremes all achieving the same sort of end result, I suppose you might call it. Yeah, I like that we ended up talking about Nigel so much there in a question from an account called Moaning Moaning Mansell. I assume that wasn't a a term of endearment <laughs> but we did talk about the 1990 Williams the FW13 in uh in our Estoril 89 episode because Williams brought that car to the final few races of 89 and uh we we had a little anecdote uh that we found from Patrick Head where he talked about the wind tunnel problems and and, and bad data they got from the wind tunnel that made that car not quite as good as it could have been Gary, next question is from Kieran R, who says, if a 2021-esque cost cap had been in place through the groove tyre period of the V10 era, what impact would that have had on the Constructors' Championship order? So it's an interesting question. Can you even begin to try and work out how pegging the spending of the big teams in that era might have shaken things up? Well, you know... I think I could sort of say from the beginning of my time in Formula One back in the, you know, it was back in the 70s as a mechanic, um, we've seen lots of teams come along and the money spent has got bigger and bigger and bigger as time went by. And you, you know, every team will spend what it, what it has. If that's enough to, to buy you success and you have the time to buy that success and get the right people around you, then well and good. But if you spend more than what you got, you go broke. I mean, that's the way it used to be. It's not quite the same as that right now. But, you know, I never, whenever I got involved in the design of the cars from 1990 onwards, I don't think I've ever seen um, a budget that didn't need to didn't need to work on to cut it back. Because, you know, you, you spend what you've got, to be honest. You plan to spend what you've got. You've got a financial controller. You've got a commercial department. Commercial department's job is bring the money in. The technical department is to spend the money to to get success. Um, so you, you've got to be very disciplined. And I don't think you can look back at an era where we had the, the groove tires, um, the V10 era, and say if we'd had cost caps, then it would have changed anything because it would still have been the same. The teams that existed at that point in time had the, the, the facilities or the tools around them to... Uh, bring the money in they needed to run the company the way they wanted to run it or needed to run it to get success. And the smaller teams didn't have that facility. So it was it was just you know, it's a chicken and egg. What comes first? 
if you had the biggest budget in the world right now and set up and, and, and give it to, let's say, Haas, you know, um, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Uh, you know, so it would take a few years to build up around that. They need to need to learn how to spend it wisely and what to spend it on. So if Mercedes had a Haas budget um, next year, that would hurt them more than a big budget would would help Haas. Because, you know, the, you, once you've got a system in place that's spending money, day in, day out, day in, day out, then to change that system is pretty difficult. And I, and I think it's always been the same. It's not, you know, I can't look back at the at the at the Groove Tire era and say there would be much difference. It was the t- the teams that were at that time were spending their budget as wisely as they could, all of them. And there's a winner and a loser every year in the championship. If you look at it, you'll always find somebody that won it, and you'll always find somebody that didn't. And that's the same it's the same now as it was then. Imagine how bad Jaguar would have been if they had less money to spend, though. That's the real question. We'll come back to that for another time. <laughs> well, the one thing I would say, just a quick comment on there. I mean, yes, Jaguar spent a lot of money, but I can assure you it didn't have as much money as, as they said they had by a long shot. Okay, that's good. We always get asked, when are we going to do the Jaguar story? And uh, it's not in Series 6. I can, I can break everyone's hearts for that now, but we will do it at some point. And uh, much like I said with the Prost Grand Prix story earlier in this series, Jaguar is worth much more than one episode but mark let's get back to the cost cap um theory this era was the time when the big teams became started to become massive the manufacturers were in in the 2000s the small teams either had to disappear or or, or kind of get their act together and and become something completely different to what we saw at the start of the era so during these years would a cost cap have been workable and as as gary kind of hinted out there would it have actually made any difference you know, you had the force of gravity of all these automotive manufacturers coming in, absolutely determined to spend the money. So you would have been um, fighting a tough battle. Um, but for that that transition that you talk about, it's fascinating because the, for perspective, all you know, we'd got up to uh, top spends before the cost cap came in of uh, pushing three hundred million dollars. We've got now got one of one hundred and forty five million dollars. When Williams won the ninety two championship with active everything and all the gizmos on the car. Williams' budget that year was thirty-five million, so that was still that was still a lot more than the little teams of the time. But it it gives an idea of just how exponential the team's growth was in the late eighties, early two thousands. Would the concept have been workable if you'd been able to force it through? I, I guess so. Yeah, to the extent that it is now. But the the problem would have been getting it accepted with the governance and the attitudes and the personalities and the sheer gravity of the money that was coming in. It, it, I think it would have been a non-starter trying to get it through. There was no way anybody was going to be able to convince Luca Montezemolo or Ron Dennis or BMW or whoever that they could only spend X and no more. And I think if they'd tried it, they'd have risked ripping the whole sport apart, which almost happened, actually. It would it have made a difference? Sure, but I, I, it would have narrowed the gap probably between the teams. But um, no, I don't think it, it would have um, sort of cut the hell's chance of getting it through. Ah, F1 politics, uh, some things some things never change, but at least we have it now and hopefully it's a good thing for the future. Let's finish the, the episode and the series with another question where we're going to parachute something that exists in modern F1 back into the V10 era. This comes from Cal's Biggest Fan. And Mark, you can answer it first. Uh, Cal's Biggest Fan asks, do you think DRS would have had much of an impact on the racing in the V10 era? Carl's biggest fan. Is he talking about Carl Crutchlow? Is he talking about the 
swift Formula Ford 2000 driver, the late 80s, Cal Foster. Anyway, well, he's going to have to let us know now, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. He's going to have to get in touch again. Okay. Anyway, I, I guess it would work in the same way as it does now. So, yeah, it would have had an impact, but it would have been a shame, wouldn't it? Some of the best moments from that era is where the, the big ballsy overtakes, you know, Senna and Mansell wheels inches apart down a Barcelona straight in the 90s or Montoya ambushing moves in the early 2000s. It would have been non-events with DRS, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I guess that that's one of the things. It, it's much harder now to get a memorable overtake because... And I know this irritates you particularly, Gary, that they're kind of drive-by passes. And Mark's example there, Senna Mansell, Barcelona 91 with DRS, you know, they're, they're, they're not side-by-side side anywhere near anywhere near the apex. So, Gary, I know you're not a fan of it today. How would you have felt if that had come in back when you were a technical director and a designer putting cars on the grid? Um, I would have been disappointed, I think, really, to be honest, because... It's it's one of those sort of situations. I believe that racing should be racing, and I don't like this, you know, mirror signal maneuver that they've got now. It, it isn't it isn't racing because you you know it should all be about one driver outwitting the other one. You know, you go way back to Arnoux and, and, and Gilles Villeneuve at Dijon, or Jacques Villeneuve at uh, no Gilles Villeneuve at Dijon. You know, and you you see racing side but two Formula One cars side by side. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, okay, so. What happens? The regulations change, all things change, and suddenly, you know, overtaking is not possible. So you have to create an artificial way. And it's like a boost button or whatever. You know, it gives it gives one car a superior advantage against another car that are basically on more or less equal terms. Um, before that, they have that advantage. So what what makes that good? Yes, it does change the circumstances. It does change the the running order to a certain extent. But what what part of racing does that is that uh, acceptable? And I, I don't I don't really understand. It's like it's like having a hundred meter sprint, and you know there's only one guy allowed to use spikes. The rest of them all have to have you know plimsolls, and you know which which is the best. If it's, if the track's slippy, then the spikes are going to be a good thing. If it's not slippy, well you can get away with it. So some tracks will will have overtaken, some tracks won't have overtaken. But racing should be about just that that little bit of courage that takes you up the inside of somebody. Um, and that's what I think we all want to see, but we're not seeing it at the moment. Let's hope 2022 does promote some better racing or closer racing for longer. And if you've got closer racing for longer, there's an opportunity for a mistake being made that allows somebody else to overtake in a real manoeuvre. Yeah, and if, if you think about it, in this series, we covered Imola 2005, one of the most memorable, most popular battles for the victory in a Grand Prix, and there was no overtaking manoeuvre, but it was the difficulty of the move and, and how brilliantly Alonso had to defend from Schumacher that made it so exciting and so memorable. Would DRS have made a difference on that Imola configuration in 2005? Possibly not, because you had the chicane at the end of the lap. But if it had been decided by a DRS pass, it'd be nowhere near as memorable as it is today. The question I've always wondered about DRS is, and maybe we'll cover this another time, is if it would have changed the way fuel strategies worked, because so often fuel stops and fuel strategies were about trying to ensure you had track position and you didn't get stuck behind cars running heavier and that sort of thing. I guess with DRS, teams might not have been so concerned about that because if you come out on fresh tyres, you could do something about it. So maybe there'd have been a change there. But I think as Mark said, and as Gary's explained, we'd have robbed ourselves of some brilliant moments and if anything, we'd bring back V10s would have fewer mem brilliant memories 
to go back and look at. So let's leave it there for series five. Thank you so much to everyone who submitted a question. And if we didn't get to yours this time, I can only apologize. As I said, we had more than ever before this time. I love seeing so many come in. Please keep sending them for future series. And if you want another chance to get your question answered and to improve your odds significantly, we will be recording a special episode exclusively for the Race Members Club in the coming weeks. If you're a part of the Members Club already, you should have received emails by now to, uh, inviting you to submit your questions. And if you're not yet a member, there's still time to sign up to get your question in. To find out more about becoming a member, check out the-race.com forward slash members club. Until then, thanks to Gary and to Mark for joining us for the final episode of the series and for all of your contributions throughout Series 5. Bring Back V10s will of course return for Series 6 later this year and that means it will soon be time for me to start working my way through the old magazine articles, the books, the interviews to piece together another 10 episodes. And at this stage, I won't be any more precise with the release date than to say we'll see you again sometime in the summer. The Athletic.